Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that tonight um, we're able to do a, a few extra little things and we, we pray now that um, you'd give us the ability to uh, concentrate, but more than that, just to, we pray that you would be the one speaking to us, not me standing up here. We pray that through the words I say, it will be your Holy Spirit at work as the words of Scripture are impressed upon our hearts. Um, help us, Father, to see ourselves, to see the world in which we live, and to see your mission clearly tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've seen this before. That picture there. So Richard Dawkins with a London bus plastered with atheist advertising. Uh, that was in 2009 in London. The, uh, the atheists were trying to say... Don't worry about God, you know, he's probably not there. Just get on with life. That kind of thing wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. I, I did the HSE about 30 years ago. I'm sure I wouldn't have seen that kind of thing back then. You see that kind of thing quite often now, though. Here's one not from London, but from Sydney. You may have even driven under that billboard. That was on the M4 for a while. Um, atheist organisation here in Sydney put that one up. And there's another one that you may have seen in the papers or uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, there are others, a couple of others like that, from an organisation trying to get rid of scripture in schools, saying it's just destructive. It's bad. It's, sometimes they, they even express it in terms of this is child abuse. Why do we let that go on in our schools? Our community is changing, isn't it? Once upon a time, it was an easy thing to claim to be a Christian and to identify as a Christian. It even had some level of social advantage. If you went to church, if you told people that you were a Christian, that, that helped you out in society. But our community is changing. And so these days, if you stick your hand up to say, well, <clears throat> I'm a believer, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, I take it seriously that opens you up to criticism and prejudice. Uh, people think differently about you once you say that kind of thing. I think we all realise that our community is changing. You might also be aware that in the last census, so five years ago now, 2011, the number of people who tick the no religion box is on the rise quite drastically. So here in Epping in 2011, 26% of the population said, that's, that's me. Look at the, the way that's been on the rise over the years and their chances are that this year in the census that figure may be well as high as 33 to 35%. Our community is definitely changing. And I think we're mostly aware of that. We might not know the figures and the statistics, but we've got a pretty good idea of the trends that are going on. Here's one figure, one statistic you might not be aware of, and maybe it will surprise you. And I think we need to take this one really seriously, because I think this one will have a significant impact on the way we think about how we engage in God's mission to call people out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's the figure. 70% of people in the community have no intention of attending church. Ever, at all, for anything. 
70% of the population. That's a huge proportion of people. And remember, these are all people, like 100% of the population are people created in God's image, loved by God to be in a relationship with God. And 70% of them say, I don't want, I'm not interested in the church. That means 70% of the people in our community are people who we are not going to reach if we advertise better. If we do letterbox drops with really cool little leaflets, we're not going to reach them. We're not going to reach them by having better music. We're not going to reach them by having snappier sermons. We're not going to reach them by running more outreach programs here at the church. Now that 70% figure, that's a figure I came across a little while ago in a book I was reading, um, and it's actually talking about the UK experience, uh, some research that was done in the, uh, in the United Kingdom. And I was trying to console myself by saying, oh, gee, that's bad, but it surely is not that bad in Australia, you know. I, there's another statistic I knew that um, at the last census, around about 60, 61% of Australians identified on the census as Christians, so I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, it's can't, it can't be like that in Australia. Like we know it's not 60% of the population attending church. It's more like 9 to 11%. But um, yeah, it's surely not 70% who won't come to church. I dug around a little bit further uh, this week to try and dig into those figures a bit more. And uh, I came across some research that was done last year, 2015, here in Australia, asking people really just one question. It was conducted in the lead-up to Easter, and the survey asked people, will you be going to church this Easter? Do you intend to go to church at Easter? Easter, right? If 61% of Australians say they're Christian, you would think, yeah, there'll be a pretty good roll-up at Easter. It, it, you'll get the, you know, the nominal Christians and they're vaguely interested in, well, I, yeah, I do believe in, a, in God and I, I kind of believe the Christian story. Those are the people who come along at Easter, right? Well, the survey says, oh, I feel like Grant Denyer when I say that. Uh, <laughs> this was not a survey done by a, a company who has a barrow to push, an anti-Christian agenda. This is done by uh, one of the most reputable social research companies in Australia, they asked the question, and the survey said 70% of Australians do not intend to go to church at Easter at all. It's amazing, isn't it? Same figure as the UK one. And if you do a bit of maths, you think if 60% of people say that they're Christian, then about half of that group of 60% just aren't interested in coming to church. That's kind of weird kind of depressing but it's a bit of a wake-up call for us if 70 percent of australians have no intention of going at easter just think about how hard it is to encourage those people to attend church at any other time it's a big number 70 percent come back 70 percent stay 70 percent uh 70 percent is a big number 70 percent of people who we're not going to reach through running evangelistic courses, 
through promoting uh, programs that we run. If we run Christianity Explored week after week after week after week, there's a huge proportion, more than 70% perhaps, who we're just not going to connect with. And you know what? Even running church in the pub is not going to reach those people. New styles of worship, new times and services of worship are not going to reach those people. The research also says, this is the stuff from the UK, in the event of a personal tragedy in their life or a national disaster, it is not the church that these people are going to go towards. We all know people like that. I met a guy yesterday while I was at tennis um, who is a classic example of the 70%. Steve was his name. Um, and Steve's a nice guy. Steve is a, a hard-working guy. He loves his kids. In fact, he loves his kids so much he's spending money to send them to a church-run school. But Steve himself has no interest in church. Um, we were chatting together about what we did for work. And after I'd told him that I was the minister at the Presbyterian Church at Epping, a couple of sentences later and a bit of discussion down the track, he said, oh, yeah, I'm an unbeliever. And, you know, he didn't say that to me as an invitation, like, oh, you're a minister. I'm an unbeliever. Please convert me. Um, he said it to me really as an apology for the fact that, as we were talking, he just had no idea about denominations or what ministers did. <laughs> he was clueless because he's not interested in church at all. Our lives are filled with Steve's, aren't they? We know dozens of people who... Um, you know, the things are coming up at church. It, maybe it was the Mark drama or Godspell, or maybe it's Christianity Explored, or maybe it's the Easter service, or maybe it's give a, a postcard to your friends to get them to write down their question. We think to ourselves, well, maybe there's one or two people who I could do that with, but a lot of the people who I know, it wouldn't make any difference at all. They're just not interested. They're not interested in church in the same way that I am not interested in joining the stamp collecting club. Doesn't interest me a bit. People can talk to me about stamps and I just go, whatever. You know, I'll be nice to you, but not interested. So here's the question. How are we going to reach them with the gospel? You know, the traditional model in churches is you put stuff on and you invite people to come and they come and they used to come. But it doesn't really work that way so much anymore. Now, you put that together with this increasingly aggressive uh, march towards secularism here in Sydney. And you might be kind of despairing, saying to yourself, what hope is there for the church? How are we going to survive? What's going to become of us? What hope is there for us here at Epping Prezi? Um, I don't know if you realise this, over the last 10 years or so, with some of these changes we've been working through, we've done okay. We've kind of, there's been ups and downs, but we've pretty much held the numbers over the last 10 years or so. And then last year, 2015, we actually had a significant dip in attendance, which is one of those ones where you kind of start to worry a little bit. And maybe you wonder, is that just the way that it's going to be from now on? That the church numbers everywhere will be in decline. And, you know, some churches will grow, but mostly things will be tough. The church will be more and more on the margins of society. What hope is there for the church? Well, let me tell you what the hope is. 
what my hope is, what, what the hope of the scriptures is. The hope for the church is you. You are the hope for this church as it seeks to engage in God's mission to call people out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're the hope. You and the ordinary everyday stuff of your lives. And it's that kind of idea that bubbles along through 1 Peter in this really compelling way that, that is going to be kind of the lens that we, we want to look at 1 Peter through over the next couple of months. You have a really significant part to play in God's mission. And it's not through learning another outline of the gospel that you can kind of write out on the back of a napkin or, or that kind of thing. I mean, those things are valuable to do. I'm not saying don't do them. The time will come, God willing, when you get to share that, when you get to say those sorts of things. But you need to realize you've got a valuable part to play in God's mission just through the ordinary, everyday stuff of how you live your life. That's the way most of us are going to get caught up in what God is doing to gather a people for himself. Some of us will have the gift of evangelism and we'll, we'll find it easy to do the, the talking and presenting the gospel with clarity and boldness like Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him, that he would have clarity and boldness as he proclaims the gospel. But you know what Paul says to the Christians in Colossae? He says, for you... Just make the most of every opportunity that you have. Let your conversation be seasoned with grace and and salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And that's kind of what Peter says in the key verse we want to look at today. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 where Peter says we need to, the, the early Christians he's writing to, but also us, we need to always be prepared to give an answer to whom? Who, who are we giving an answer to? To the youth group leader who asks us, you know, give us a five-minute presentation of the gospel? No, that's not what Peter says. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Which implies what? It implies that you're living a life that shows something about the hope that's within you and it's making people ask questions. Here is the hope for the church. Here's how we reach the 70% out there. This is what your, your calling is. Each one of us, that you're commissioning as a missionary to go out when the church scatters and you're at work and you're in your place of study and you're on the sporting field and you're catching the train or the bus or wherever you are. Your calling is to live questionable lives, to lead questionable, highly questionable lives. Now that is not something that's just going to happen automatically. You know that's true, don't you? (laughs) Like if you just keep going along in life as normal, most of the time there's not much of this, can you just tell me a reason for the hope that you have? When was the last time somebody asked you that question? I hope some of you can tell me at last couple that it really has happened. But, but the truth is no one is going to ask you about the hope which you have inside. No one is going to respond to your interactions with them with questions about why do you do things a certain way? Why, why is Jesus so important to you if you live just the same as all the other aspirational trying to make their way in the world people that make up our community? 
See, if you spend the same amount of money on clothes and, and stuff online, if you go on the same holidays as everyone else, if you speak the same way that they speak, if you, you work up the way up the ladder at work the same way that they do, if we pursue the same dreams that they pursue, if, if your life looks exactly the same as the lives of everybody else in the community, what on earth are they going to want to ask you about? I think Peter assumes that you're going to live a life that raises questions. And actually, as we work our way through 1 Peter, we're going to see how he urges us to live lives that are distinctly Christian. He talks about holiness. He talks about our identity. And he talks about those things working their way into work and family and husband and wife relationships and the way that you relate to a government that is, is giving you a hard time and the way you respond when things get tough. All the ordinary stuff of life. And it doesn't come necessarily easily to us. It's something we need to be deliberate about. We need to be conscientious in choosing to live a questionable life, the kind of life that people are going to go, yeah, there is something different about him. She is, like Byrne said before, strange in a compelling way. And I want to know about that. And so, as I said, we'll, we'll follow that theme through all of 1 Peter. But what I want to do today is just come in on a couple of things that Peter says, particularly in chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we had the readings for. The kind of key strands, the kind of railway tracks along which this questionable life is going to run. You need these two things going on. There are two words here, two D words. One is we need to declare. The other one is display. So we need to declare in the ordinary, everyday stuff of our lives, we need to declare with our words that Jesus is king. Okay, you can't do the, have you seen that quote that apparently St. Francis of Assisi said, which actually he didn't? Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Well, words are necessary, friends. Peter says they're necessary. So we need to declare that Jesus is king with our words. And we also need to do the other thing, the display that Jesus is king with our lives. And I want to show you that in 1 Peter chapter 2, first of all. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 9. So just before where Wendy began the reading. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says to the Christians that he's writing to, the, the strangers... <laughs> He says, here is your special identity now. You've been given this new identity, specifically chosen by God to be his people in the same way that the people of Israel were chosen by God to be his people back in the Old Testament. You're like a royal priesthood, which means that you've got a job to do. You, you have a purpose. There's a reason that you've been chosen and it's not so that you might be blessed with all of the material blessings that come from being a prince or princess. It's not what Peter says, is it? You've been chosen so that you may declare. So that you may declare with your words the praises of him or the, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. We are to declare 
with our words how good God is. We're supposed to talk about in the ordinary everyday stuff of life, talk about how good God is, how God has shown grace to us, how God is changing us, how God's given us hope and a new identity. And you might think, yeah, I've heard preachers say that kind of thing before, but I'm, I'm just not cut out for that. I can't do that. I'm not into that stuff. I want to say back to you, actually, you do that kind of thing all the time. You declare the excellencies of some music that you just downloaded from iTunes or that you heard on Spotify all the time. You tell your friends, oh man, you should listen to this track or this band. It's so great. Or you declare with your words how excellent and good is the favourite TV show that you've been watching. So Renee, some people are going to declare to you that Doctor Who is really good. And you should believe them. (laughs) Just like Renee declares for us that she loves Harry Potter. And even though book five is a bit frustrating, it's really good to get into. See how we do that in our lives? I sometimes lament that I have probably been a better evangelist for the West Wing than I ever have for Jesus. More people have started watching the West Wing as a result of my declarations than perhaps have come to faith. We'll see in eternity which, no, I know which is more important. But doesn't that just show that we actually do this stuff all the time? We declare the, the praises of things that we think are good. And it ought to be the same for God. The things that we love, we talk about. I think a lot of you have probably heard of John Dixon. He's written a book that's had a few title changes over the years. Um, I think this is the current title. You might have an older version called Promoting the Gospel. Um, But there's some good stuff in here about the things that people fear that stop them from talking about their faith just in the ordinary, everyday stuff. So he lists them. He says there's the fear of being labelled as a fanatic or a fundamentalist. That stops us talking every day about what we love about God. We fear what will happen to us when we don't fit in with our friends or our colleagues. He says some of us have a low-level insecurity about the credibility of the Christian faith. In other words, we... We think, yeah, no, I believe it, but I'm just not sure that I can necessarily back it up if I get into a conversation. And that that frightens me, so I just won't go there because my friends are going to... And he says there's also the fear, and this is a genuine one. People sometimes don't want to say anything because they're worried that they might get things wrong theologically. You know, I'm not trained, I'm not an expert, so I won't say anything. Someone after nine o'clock said to me today, that's good. I won't worry about getting things wrong. I'll just start speaking. And I said, praise God. There's another one that John Dixon lists, um, kind of surprising, but probably true. He reckons many of us have an overly negative impression of how unbelievers perceive Christianity. So we actually think that the folks out there are even more down on Christians than they really are. And so we don't engage in conversation when actually people are probably happier to talk about things of faith than we think. I want to add another one to his list. And this one flows out of what we were just talking about a moment ago. I reckon one of the reasons we're not good at declaring the excellencies of God, who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, 
is that we're just not very good at thinking about those things. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about how good God is. I do spend a lot of time thinking about the West Wing because there's this new podcast that started up. Do you see how it works? How much time do you spend thinking about and meditating on just how good God is? How wonderful his grace and mercy are? That he's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's spend more time thinking about those and then those things will naturally bubble up into our speech as well. So, how are we going to live the questionable lives? Two tracks, remember. Two D words. We need to declare that Jesus is king in our ordinary talking. We also need to be careful about displaying that reality in our lives. And that's what a lot of 1 Peter is going to be about as we work through. How do you actually live in a way that shows that Jesus is the king of your life, that he's the one who sets the agenda? Now, in chapter 2, where we were looking, verse 9 and 10, Peter, a couple of verses later, says we ought to live such good lives. So chapter 2, verse 12, we ought to live such good lives amongst unbelievers, luminous Goodness, you know, that is shining out from us, a luminous godliness, such good lives that even when we're getting knocked and abused by people, though they accuse you of doing wrong, those good lives kind of shine forth and point people to God. They might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. It's the display of who God is in our lives, the display of God's power in changing lives, the display of how God actually does change priorities in a person's life that makes our lives lives that are worth questioning. And that's what Peter is getting at in chapter 3, if we go back there, to when he says that even if you should suffer, so verse 14 of chapter 3, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. You know, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. He was writing, of course, to a group of people living in the Roman Empire when Nero was the emperor. Okay? Do not fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. Well, actually, Peter, I'm kind of frightened of the emperor. No, he says, forget him. I mean, he's important, but he's not the real boss. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Remember that Jesus is the one who rules over the emperor. Jesus is the one who rules over whatever it is that makes you scared, whoever it is that makes you scared. And so in that context, the context of not being afraid of my, uh, for my reputation or, or anything else, having deliberately set apart Jesus as the king, who's the boss of every part of my existence, it's in that context that I will start to make choices and decisions that make my life genuinely worth asking questions about, that make it a display of who God is. So in that context, what I do with my money becomes a display of the lordship of Jesus, that I spend it on what he commands me to spend it on, giving to the poor, giving to support ministry. The way I handle hurts and disagreements in relationships becomes a display of the gospel of reconciliation and forgiveness. Our lives are to display 
that Jesus is king. Display and declare. Both of those things together. That's how we become missionaries to the 70% who aren't just going to come to church because we give them a postcard. That's how we reach them with the good news. Through talking about our faith, just the same way we talk about our favourite TV show or book or songs. Through talking about how God is at work in our lives. And do you notice the things that God is doing in your life? Do you pay much attention to that? It's worth thinking about it. How's God changed me? What are the signs of his grace in my life? Then tell people. Man, people on, um, what's it called? Nutramedics or something? No, that's a makeup. Oh, whatever. <laughs> People talk about their changes that are happening in their life all the time on the, on the weight loss program they're going on or whatever. Do we talk about how God is changing our lives? That's how we become missionaries to the 70%. Not just relying on what we do when we're together as church and the church as the institutional organization does stuff, the institution that people aren't interested in, but when we're the church scattered And we're living that ordinary, everyday life where we declare and we display that Jesus is in charge. I could um, stand here and talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours, but I uh, can't do that. I just want to leave you with one encouragement, one challenge that's come to me in one of the books that I've been um, working my way through. Um, And I want to recommend this book, Everyday Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, is a book that actually works through 1 Peter. And if you are in a growth group that's doing the 1 Peter studies, or even if you're not, and you want to do something else, have something else that you can talk about as a group, this is a great book to, um, to look at. This is a terrific book. And I, I, I just want to pick up one thing that they suggest in their book as one of the ways that we can start engaging with the 70% who are out there. Because most of us go, wow, Matt, that's great. I'm so encouraged to hear that. I'm not sure how I can add any more stuff into my life, though. My life is really full. And Chester and Timus actually encourage you to say, hey, you don't need to add more stuff into your life. What you need to do is add people into the stuff that's already going on in your life. So let me get really practical. They suggest this. You get a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil or texter, whatever is your thing, and you make a list, first column. You list all of the stuff that you do every day, you know, the mundane, ordinary stuff. Go to work, go to school, catch a bus, uh, walk the dog, I have a meal somewhere. Just list it all out. And then you do a column with the weekly stuff. So, you know, have a shower. Hang on, no, that's in the daily one. Um, You do a list with the the weekly stuff where, you know, maybe it's like going and doing the shopping or um, or watching your favourite TV programme, although with streaming we tend not to kind of watch things at the same time anymore, I suppose. Um, and then you do one for your monthly routine as well. That might include having your hair cut or going out somewhere. Um, and what you do is here's all the stuff going on in your life. And instead of having to add more stuff to your life, you think about the people who you know and how you can join them into the things that you're already doing. So maybe someone at school or uni who travels roughly the same kind of time and same direction as you you organise to get the train together. Why would you do that? 
Well, you can declare and display all you like, but if you're not doing it where the 70% can see, it won't make any difference. And so there's stuff that we do all the time that we just need to get people connected into what we're doing. So maybe, maybe you say, hey, you're into Harry Potter, I'm into Harry Potter, let's get together and read Harry Potter <laughs> together. Or let's, let's sit down and watch The West Wing from season one through to the end of season seven together. It literally takes a week with bathroom breaks, non-stop. <laughs> But you know, you know what I'm getting at. You don't have to add more stuff into your life. You just have to add people into the stuff that you're already doing. And while you're doing that, you intentionally declare and display. Not in a, you know, me and Steve at the tennis. Oh, you're an unbeliever. Can I just have the score sheet? Let me flip it over and I'll draw out four spiritual laws or six boxes or whatever. No, no, not like that. Spend time with people so that they get to see your life, that Jesus really is king. And as you declare and display, the time's going to come when there are questions. Because you're leading a questionable life. And as we go through 1 Peter, we're going to find more and more encouragements and more and more practical help on how to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have saved us. You've given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. You've given us a new identity, made us uh, the people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You've joined us into a new community of people. You've called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. We thank you for those things. Father, please give us a passion for those 70% out there who don't know you and who just aren't going to pay attention to what's going on in church. Thank you that you've put us in touch with them and with a passion for their salvation on our hearts, we pray that you'd help us to be deliberate about declaring and displaying the Lordship of Jesus so that we might actually get a chance to give a reason for the hope that is within us because people want to ask questions. Father, we thank you that in the early church, your lordship was on display. And in a a society that didn't have much time for Christianity, you changed that society. You changed civilization drastically through the declaration and the display of Jesus Christ in the lives of those early believers. Father, help us not to despair about the changes that are happening in our community, but help us to be like them, like the people Peter was writing to, so that you might, through the ordinary everyday stuff that we're doing, be gathering people into that holy nation, that royal priesthood, so that people who once were not a people might become part of the people of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.